calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Realm presents Low Life. Episode 3. Carrie Carlyle rubbed her temples. This was bad. Shit, 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 Brad Marlin said. Shit, 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 fuck. They stood over the badly beaten, red-headed corpse lying on Carrie's living room rug. And not just any corpse. This was Olivia Matheson, daughter of one of the most powerful men in Fort Lauderdale. Shit, 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 shit. Marlin continued as Carrie surveyed the room. Battling a weregator had led to quite a bit of collateral damage. A smashed lamp and busted laptop were just the start of it. The whole place was a disaster. Let's calm down, okay? Carrie said. We need to figure out what we're going to do. Marlin clocked a set of headlights turning onto Carrie's block. We've got to close up the windows, he said. Anyone driving by can see right in here. They walked around the small house, shutting curtains and closing blinds. Now it felt like they were doing something. Carrie entered her grandfather's office, nearly tripping over the footlocker she'd caught Olivia rummaging through. The trunk was filled with dusty files and folders. She slammed the lid shut and walked to the bar-covered window. She pulled the curtains closed. Back in the living room, she found Marlin brushing glass out of a fallen picture frame. He started to hang it back up. You can just leave that, she said. Let me help pick up. We need to figure out what we're going to do. Cleanup can wait. Sorry, he said, dropping the picture. Listen, I've been thinking. We're totally and completely fucked. What if we just go to the police, she asked. No way, we can't bring in the cops. Why not? We haven't done anything wrong. Aside from me beating a woman to death... I don't think the sheriff's department is going to see beyond that one. She wasn't a woman when you beat her to death. She was a... something. An alligator. We'll explain what happened. That Olivia knocked on my door. I wanted to help her, and I let her in. I was getting her some clothes when she transformed into a monster. You showed up just in time to save me. You killed her in self-defense. It was her or us. Then, by some kind of shitty miracle, she turned back into Olivia. I mean, that's the truth. 
Adkins isn't going to buy a word of that. You saw him work yesterday. He wouldn't consider for two seconds that something other than a chupacabra killed Eduardo. He and his dumbass deputies just aren't going to believe us. They might, she said. It sounds crazy, but it actually happened. If they investigate, they'll see that. And if they don't, I go to prison for murder. You'll be looking at three to five for helping me cover it up. But we're not covering anything up. We'd be telling the truth. You're counting on a guy like me getting a fair shake from the Florida legal system? Henry Matheson is going to sick every lawyer in Broward County on me. It's not going to work, Carrie. They're going to give me a raw deal. Carrie pointed down at the body. I saw her turn into an alligator. We both watched her change back. We didn't imagine that, right? Right. So they'll do an autopsy. Something in her chemical composition will show that she could turn into an alligator. I'm banking my life on the hopes that she has alligator DNA. Maybe she has cold blood. Actually, you're right, Carrie said. She slipped into academic mode. Humans are warm-blooded. Reptiles aren't. There's got to be some thermoregulatory marker in her cardiovascular system that allows for a human poikilotherm. Whatever extraordinary mutation let her shift between mammalia and reptilia is going to show up under a microscope. And what if an autopsy doesn't show anything? PhDs and lab techs have been cracking open the chupacabras for almost a decade, and they've learned diddly shit. Not everything can be explained by a series of dots and dashes. This monster stuff, it doesn't play by the rules. And I sure can't count on a lab report stating that Olivia was a were-gator. Not when my life is on the line. His concerns were valid. A lot of people down here were pretty resistant to science, and the state certainly had its share of crazies. There was a good chance the police were going to treat Marlon and Carrie's story like the rantings of any other lunatic. What other option do we have? She asked. We ditch the body. Pretend this never happened. I can't lie, Carrie said. I'm a terrible liar. You won't have to. We're not saying a thing about Olivia Matheson to anyone. Not a peep. If you hear that name, just say, yeah, very sad that they never found her. We'll bury her so deep that it'll be the truth. Olivia goes down in history as a tragic missing person case, just like she already was before we got tangled up in this mess. But what if we get caught? How would we? Marlin asked. Did anyone see her knock on your door? Carrie shook her head. I don't think so. It's always pretty quiet around here. Perfect. No one's laid eyes on her in weeks. There's nothing tying her to us. The cops will keep the search up for a while, but it won't last forever. The media will move on once the trail runs cold. It's sad, but it happens all the time. And you can live with that? I live with worse every day, baby. Jesus, Carrie said. What else have you done? I have no idea why I just said that. But yes, if it's this or spending the rest of my life in jail, I can live with it. Carrie sat down on the couch. She dropped her head into her hands. Let's say we go with your idea. Where would we dispose of the body? I haven't gotten that far, he said. You have any thoughts? I haven't even found a good yoga studio down here yet. I don't have a clue where to dig a grave. Actually, I'm Nixon burying her. The water table's too high. All it takes is one good storm and she washes up on someone's lawn. Okay, she said. So what's another way to get rid of a corpse? Marlin walked over to the body. Tears welled up in his eyes. Fuck, Carrie. What the hell have I done? I, 
I should have stopped once it was clear I was winning. I just kept thinking about it killing Eduardo. I mean, fuck. Marlon collapsed into a love seat, a blood-soaked and broken man. It's gonna be all right, Carrie said, knowing it was probably miles from the truth. We just need to move quickly here. Let me get you a new shirt, okay? Do you need some water? Marlon just stared into space. Carrie stood up and walked into her grandfather's cluttered office. What was in this room that Olivia wanted? Carrie knew the endless boxes were filled with files from Frank Carlyle's time in the military, and he'd always been strangely protective of his papers, moving them from home to home throughout his life. But she didn't have time to go through them now. She opened her grandfather's closet, lots of polyester and floral prints. She grabbed a blue Gaiabera. Marlon appeared in the doorway. I think I know where we can take the stiff, he said. Marlon steered the brat down a quiet road surrounded by wetlands and forest. Carrie leaned her head against the passenger window. It had been a quiet ride. Early on, Marlon tried to lighten the mood with a couple jokes, but they hadn't gotten the reaction from Carrie that he had hoped for. To make matters worse, Marlon was stone-cold sober. Carrie didn't have so much as a bottle of wine at her house. He'd wanted to deal with disposing of the body on his own, but she'd insisted on coming with him. She'd argued that she was already in as much trouble as he was. They both knew that wasn't one bit true. His raw knuckles, the rainbow of a bruise on his left jaw, he was the one who killed the beast, not her. He figured the real reason she'd insisted on coming along was to make sure that he didn't screw something up. He was well aware that he wasn't coming across as the most competent person. But he was convinced that his plan to take the corpse to Arrowhead was a good one. He was relieved when Carrie finally agreed to it. They rolled the body up in the carpet from Carrie's living room, then Marlin pulled the truck around to the side of the house. When the coast was clear, they rushed the wrapped-up corpse into the truck's bed. A human burrito, Marlin called it. It didn't even get a chuckle from Carrie. Tough crowd. It had taken 40 minutes to drive out here. They hadn't seen another car in the quarter hour since they turned onto this road. There were no streetlights, and it had been silent ever since Carrie made him shut off ZZ Top's Eliminator. Marlin hadn't driven these roads in at least ten years. Few people had. There were pockets of land like this all throughout the state. Super rural wooded areas hugging the Everglades, they were abandoned once the suckers arrived. These were the parts where the chupacabra infestation was at its heaviest back in 2013, when things really kicked into gear. For the first couple years, the government tried to quarantine these areas off, blasting them with whatever gases the Army Corps of Engineers pulled out of their vaults that week. They were wheeling out concoctions that hadn't been seen since Ponce de Leon was traipsing the swamplands. They would manage to wipe out one wave of suckers, but the beasts would just come back, bigger, stronger, multiplied. It was like shaving back hair, was how Marlin described it to Carrie. Eventually, the feds decided that isolation was their best option. They would leave these nesting areas be, 
The chupacabras were violent, but when they weren't hunting, the vast majority stuck together. They spent their time fighting and fucking each other. He had heard all about these sucker havens, but he'd never had a reason to come out here. One in five researchers who tried to study the chupacabras in their habitats never came back. The lab coats eventually announced that they'd learned everything they were going to learn about the new species. The government funding stopped. The research had been ineffective and far too dangerous. Private companies were supposedly taking their own swings at studying the creatures, but the only endgame anyone saw when they got close to a large sucker population was a bad one. As Florida became accustomed to life post-Chupacabra, most people simply forgot that these parts of town existed. Recent maps marked the areas with a large blue X. Everyone knew what it meant. Don't even think about it. Marlin was crushed when he learned that Arrowhead Day Camp had become a sucker haven. He wished he could have done something, but the place was notorious now. It was reputedly home to more chupacabras per square foot than anywhere other than the island of Yekes. He had fond childhood memories of the camp. After years of begging and pleading with them, his parents enrolled him in a magical two-week session in August between fourth and fifth grades. By the following summer, his parents were divorcing and money was tight. He'd thought he'd never see the place again. But eight years later, with a lot of charm and a little bit of luck, Marlin scored himself a cherry job as a counselor back at Arrowhead. Those were simpler times. It was the early 90s, and Marlin was in his prime. He was doing one-arm pull-ups and putting down a few dozen beers in one sitting. He barely remembered the actual work of camp counseling. He knew he was in charge of archery, but these days he couldn't string a bow if his life depended on it. He did remember the nights, though. The parties, the beer, the drugs, the girls. Shit, those summers were some of the best of his life. During the closing night of his third and final season there, Brad Marlin met Vicky Velasquez. It was at a campfire party. She'd tagged along with a few friends. For Marlin, it was love at first sight. They were on again, off again for a few years after that. The off-agains were always his fault. He'd been an idiot. Other women, dead-end jobs, lying, gambling. Brad Marlin couldn't get out of the way of his self-destructive impulses, and he certainly couldn't blame Vicky for telling him to get lost. Somehow, he managed to string together enough consecutive months of good behavior that he convinced her to marry him. But it wasn't long before his old habits came roaring back, along with some nasty new ones. Vicky gave him almost six years of rope to hang himself on. He and Vicky got along much better once they were divorced. After a few beers, Marlin was known to tell people that she'd been the love of his life. He even left that same drunken sentiment on Vicky's answering machine. More than a few times. But deep down, Marlin knew that he didn't deserve her. He wondered if Vicky would visit him if he ended up in prison. Guys on death row didn't get a lot of visits from their ex-wives. But he wasn't going to go to prison. 
His plan was going to work. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Marlin pulled the brat onto a smaller dirt road that turned into a driveway. An old chain-link gate sported a sign advertising Camp Arrowhead. Marlin couldn't remember if the fence had always been there or if it was added to contain the chupacabras after the outbreak. If it was the latter, it hadn't worked. Suckers could climb, they could dig, and they could chew through anything this side of marble. A run of chain-link never stood a chance against them. Marlin had lost count of how many chupacabras he'd wasted over the past seven years. He was probably the last guy who should be swinging by expecting a favor from them, but here he was. He killed the ignition. Carrie turned to him. This is it? He nodded. Yep. Arrowhead Day Camp, a.k.a. Sucker Paradise. Let's get suited up. Marlin flipped on the LED work lights mounted on top of his truck, flooding the blackness in a shocking blue-white ring. They stepped out of the truck and walked around to the back. Carrie wouldn't take her eyes off the woods, unnerved by the sounds of chupacabras scratching and scurrying around. Marlin popped the gate. He grabbed two heavy suits from a dirty old cooler. They were modified chainmail shark suits, designed for divers to withstand a shark bite. Marlin rarely wore his on the job anymore. They weren't necessary if you knew what you were doing. Plus, the tunic and suspenders made him feel like a medieval dork. Carrie inspected her suit. It was riddled with bite marks and clearly meant for someone much larger than her. Marlin zipped her up. Don't worry about the size, he said. Better too big than too small. Marlin's suit, on the other hand, was a tight squeeze. He sucked in his gut as Carrie battled a zipper on his back. Christ, I must have been 20 pounds lighter the last time I wore this, he muttered. Marlin pulled on a banged-up catcher's helmet, and Carrie slipped on a fencing mask. All right, let's get you back in the truck, Marlin said. Carrie lumbered into the passenger seat and watched as Marlin opened the gates to the camp. A half dozen chupacabras raced into the road. A big one clamped its jaws onto Marlin's ankle. He felt it a little, more the pressure from the powerful maw than the teeth themselves. The suit was doing its job. He kicked the sucker off and hurried back to the truck. He climbed in and looked at Carrie. Here we go. Carrie peered out the passenger window at Camp Arrowhead, fascinated by what she could make out in the moonlight. They passed log cabins and smaller huts, overgrown tennis courts, and tattered archery targets hanging lamely from their stands. As they drove up the main road, she saw a few suckers climbing a totem pole, or at least that's what it must have been at some point. 
Now it looked like a massive chewed-up dog toy. They're nibblers, Marlin explained. They'll gnaw on trees, houses, anything wood, really. More like termites and beavers. It's not like they're building shit. The books will tell you that it keeps her teeth sharp. I think they're just chaotic fuckers. This is weirdly kind of beautiful, isn't it? Carrie said. This place was meant for children. It used to be full of joy and innocence. Now it's swarmed with these invasive beasts that no one understands. And they're the only thing on land we might call our natural predator. It's a kind of poetic justice. It's sad, all right, Marlin said. You know what's not sad? See that dumpster over there? In just one incredible night, I got two separate hand jobs inside it. From who, you ask? The answer might shock you. Carrie decided she'd keep her musings to herself from now on. As a brat rolled past the lakeshore, Carrie spotted a dozen chupacabras sniffing around a rack of kayaks. There's a bunch of them. What about dropping her there? Uh, that's not nearly enough, Marlin said. Ten chupacabras will take at least three hours to chew the flesh from the body. I don't want to stick around that long, and I'm not leaving until the deed is done. It hadn't dawned on Carrie that waiting around while a woman was fed on like carrion was part of the evening's itinerary. We need a shitload of them, Marlin continued. We're heading to the old dining hall. My buddy Deke the Freak was up here a couple summers ago, said he saw hundreds of them cooped up in there. If we dump her in the main nest, it'll be like dropping her in a pool full of piranhas. Will they consume the skeleton? Eventually they'll get to it, but it could take weeks. We just need them to get down to the bones. That'll remove any forensic evidence tracing her back to us. If the cops find a skeleton, they'd be able to determine that it's Olivia Matheson, but they won't have any leads as to how she got here. It was remorseless and revolting, but Carrie had to admit this wasn't a terrible plan. Wait, hold on. What about the tracks your car leaves behind? She asked. It's a truck, and I'm one step ahead of you. The roads still pay for a little bit up ahead. The road up to the cafeteria is dirt, but get this. We'll drive up that road in reverse. If they do discover our tracks, they won't be able to tell if we were coming or going. Are you joking? No. I don't see how that can possibly work, Carrie said. You're not getting it. We drive to the cafeteria in reverse. It'll look like we were coming from the cafeteria. Yeah, I get it. And how will we drive back down? Marlin scratched his head. In reverse. That'd be the same thing as if we drove there and back in a forward gear. Okay, fair enough, he said. So we drive up there in reverse, then we'll come back down and forward. That way, it looks like there were two trucks leaving. Two of the same car, Carrie repeated. Exactly. Two identical trucks, both leaving. It'll really baffle them. Yeah, but they're both your car. This is not a common car for people to be driving in this day and age. I'll bet there aren't three more in the whole state. They'll be confused for, like, two minutes. Well, first off, Marlin protested, it's a truck, not a car. He went quiet for a little bit. Well, shit. Good thing you're here. Yeah, she said. Good thing. Okay, stop. I need another break, Marlin said, gasping for breath. They dropped the human burrito in the dirt. They were about 50 yards from the cafeteria. They'd left the brat where the pavement ended. That was at least 150 yards ago. 
He pulled the catcher's mask from his face, and the beam from his ultra-bright headlamp shot into the cloudy sky. Carrie took the break as an opportunity to wipe some sweat from under her fencing hood. She watched Marlin suck down air and wondered if he was emphysemic. Their plan had changed. They were now carrying the body to the cafeteria, on foot. They wouldn't leave car tracks this way. But at this stage, Carrie was sorry she'd pointed out the fundamental flaws in Marlin's logic. She didn't even want to think about what kind of footprints their shark suits were leaving in the mud. Would they be able to determine her weight and height just by checking the depth of her steps? She stopped herself. She was getting caught up in the details. If this place was as desolate as Marlin claimed it was, the next rain would wash away their tracks before anyone knew to look for them. Marlin stretched his back. He strained his arms until they both heard a loud crack. There we go. I think I can make it the rest of the way now. Carrie doubted that was true. This was the fourth time they'd had to stop. Chupacabras were weaving underfoot. A few had bitten at her legs. But they were easy enough to shake off. Carrie was surprised that the suit worked as well as it did. Through the darkness and fog, she was finally able to make out the large cafeteria. Like every other structure on the grounds, its best days were behind it. Now it was a dilapidated mess of boarded-up windows and dangling gutters. Suckers crawled in and out of the walls through dozens of basketball-sized holes. They reached the building and dropped the body on the ground. Marlon trudged to a hole and peered inside. He pulled his portable spray gun off his shoulder and hit a switch on a top-mounted mag light. He scanned the building's interior with the light. Wow. What is it? Carrie asked. Hundreds of suckers. I've never seen so many in one place. This'll do just fine. He turned back to Carrie. Come take a look. This is insane. I'll take your word for it. Marlin walked over to the big green double doors that served as the main entrance. He tugged on the handle, but it wouldn't budge. He put his shoulder into it. Nada. He wound up to kick it, but Carrie stopped him when she saw something shiny hanging from the handles. You see there's a lock on the door, right? Carrie said. Marlin bent down to shine a light on the four-digit combo lock. How'd I miss that? Looks kind of new, too. That's weird. He spun the digits on the cylinder and gave the lock a tug. It didn't open. He scratched his head. Well, it's not 6969. Whoever put this on here has no sense of humor whatsoever. What do we do now? Carrie asked, exasperated. Marlin pointed at a boarded-over spot in the exterior wall. Let's get her through there. It's the old snack bar counter. Marlin dropped a Jansport to the ground and pulled out a small pry bar. He went to work pulling nails from the plywood cover-up. You used to be able to come here and grab a cup of Kool-Aid if it was hot out. There was a horrible old woman who worked here, Mrs. Conversano. She'd line all the cups onto a tray and just pour Kool-Aid straight across them, splashing it everywhere. You'd be picking ants out of your cup for ten minutes before you even got a taste of the sweet stuff. Man, I miss this place. Give me a hand here. I've got it just about free. On Marlin's count, they yanked down the barrier. It revealed another sheet of plywood, this one installed from the inside. Marlin gave it a good push, but it was solid. Damn it, he grumbled, chucking the pry bar at the building in frustration. After the air had settled, they heard scratching noises as the suckers agitated inside. I'm going to take a look at the rest of the building. Pretty sure there's a door to the kitchen around back. Marlin said, you okay to wait for me here? Carrie nodded, 
not exactly thrilled with this development. As he walked off, Carrie wandered over to one of the holes in the wall and peered inside. She shrieked. The interior was thronged with chupacabras. The pallid rodents surged in mass toward the sound of her voice. Carrie couldn't imagine a worse fate than the one in store for Olivia Matheson. She noticed that the moonlight slicing through the room came from the ceiling. Marlin called out to Carrie as he rounded the building. Place is sealed tight. I don't know what we're going to do. Can we get her up to the roof? Carrie asked. Getting on top of the building hadn't been the struggle Marlin imagined it would be. The roof had a gentle slope, and he could almost reach it from his tiptoes. In a stroke of luck that the rest of their night had been sorely lacking, he'd found a rickety ladder lying against the old utility shed. Once they'd climbed up, they used some rope from Marlin's backpack to pull the body from the ground. Harry expressed concern that the creaking rooftop wouldn't hold them, but Marlin jumped up and down a few times to prove that the rotting wood still had some miles left in it. They found the skylight. Marlin shined his light through the glass. On the floor below, the chupacabras looked like a furry, pulsating carpet. Marlin raised the pry bar up above his head. Carrie stepped away as he smashed at the glass. It took a few healthy whacks, but he finally had a hole large enough to fit a body through. You ready to drop her? he asked. Let's get this over with. Marlin slid his end of the rolled-up rug to the edge of the skylight. He had a weird feeling inside. Should we... like, say a few words? he asked. What do you mean? A eulogy or something. Carrie stared at him. I wouldn't know what to say. Did you have something in mind? He had nothing. There were no words. They both took hold of the rug's fringe. Well, bon appetit, I guess, Marlin said. They yanked at the carpet and it unrolled. Olivia's body plunged into the depths of the Camp Arrowhead cafeteria. The corpse hit the ground with a soft thud. Marlin looked down after her. He saw a flurry of chupacabras scutter over to the body. Okie dokie, he said. Now we wait. Marlin and Carrie lay on either side of the smashed skylight. They did their best to ignore the scratching sounds below. Gazing up at the stars, Marlin felt a sense of relief. They got the body all the way out here without being spotted. It was a good plan that he'd come up with. Even Carrie seemed to think so. He looked over at her. Not the night you were expecting, huh? She glared at him. I'm sorry about all this, he said. It's fine, Brad. It's not your fault. You reacted how anyone would. I acted out of fear. If I'd been stronger, I wouldn't have killed her. You didn't know what she was. We still don't know what she was. It was true. They'd avoided talking too much about what they had witnessed tonight. It all seemed so much like a dream that it was hard to think there could be some kind of real-world explanation for any of it. How do you think it happened, he asked. 
Olivia turning into an alligator monster. I have no idea. She didn't say anything before she transformed. She asked for help, but she could barely talk. She was terrified. It was like she was trying to fight off the metamorphosis. Like she knew it was coming, he asked. She nodded. We know she transitioned back and forth a few times already, right? She had to have been a gator when she attacked my chickens. She was back to human when we saw her in the road. She was an alligator again when she killed Eduardo, and then human again when she showed up tonight. Marlin turned the patterns over in his head. If she was scared when she was human, maybe she was turning into a monster against her will. Possibly. Everyone says she was this super wonderful person. She must have pissed somebody off, Marlin said. Or maybe it's tied to her father somehow. He's involved in some shady shit. Like what? Jeez, you're asking the wrong guy. It's a bunch of boring political slash real estate slash eco-environmental stuff that I barely pay attention to. Not sure I'd understand it if I did. It seems like everyone is always pissed off at the guy, but he's making money hand over fist. And he creates plenty of jobs. Sparky worked for him when he was just out of the Marines, but he quit for some ideological reason. Paycheck is a paycheck, I always say. I don't care where it's coming from. Matheson gives a lot of money to charities and all that, but he's still the kind of guy you want to punch in the face every time he's on TV. Or maybe that's just me. I'd do a little digging on him, but I really don't want to think about any of this after tonight, Carrie said. Yep. I hear that. It was quiet. He stared back up at the stars. The scratching from the cafeteria had stopped. All right, he said, standing up. Let's see how they're doing. Marlin looked down through the skylight. What he saw wasn't good. Olivia's body lay twisted on the floor below. But there were no chupacabras on top of her anymore. In fact... They were giving the corpse a wide berth. Shit. Carrie looked up at him. What? They aren't eating her. What? They haven't touched her. Carrie stood up to check for herself. She turned to Marlon. You said they'd eat her. They'll eat anything. They've eaten bodies before. Shit, I've caught them doing it. So why aren't they eating her? Carrie started pacing around on the roof. It almost seemed as if there was a kind of metaplastic change occurring when she turned into an alligator. At a cellular level, there's no biological correlation for that extreme a transition. And if it's new to us, I'll bet it's new to the chupacabras. Dogs can smell cancers, so why should we assume the chupacabras can't smell mutations? Ergo, why try something that might taste like shit? That all checks out for me. So what do we do now? We can't just leave her down there. Maybe we can, Marlin said. It's a dead body. I'm sure that she has all sorts of DNA on her that points to us. No one comes out here. It's too risky, Brad. We'll be screwed if someone finds her. They'll be able to trace it back to you. She had a point. How are we going to get her? he said. 
There's no way down there. You must have some more rope in your car, right? I do. We can use the winch on my truck. But fuck, Carrie. What we're talking about is a lot of work. You sure it's worth it? We can't leave her here, she said. Do you want to do it or should I? Marlin really, really didn't want to go down there. I'll do it, he said. It's way too dangerous for you. And to be honest, I don't think that shark suit you're wearing is enough to withstand the volume of chupacabra bites you'd get in that nest. Jesus! Didn't you tell me this thing is impenetrable? Impenetrable within reason, yeah. Sit tight. I'm going to get the rope. Carrie plopped down on the roof, which promptly collapsed underneath her. Carrie opened her eyes. Her whole body ached. Everything was blurry through her mesh fencing mask. Beyond the Carrie-sized hole in the ceiling, she recognized the stars and the moon. She heard grunting and snuffling. Her eyes adjusted to the darkness. Marlin's head appeared at the edge of the hole. Holy shit! Are you okay? He asked. She wasn't sure, but out of habit she responded, yes. She didn't usually like to make waves. Then she realized where she was and what must have happened. She had fallen 15 feet through the cafeteria roof and into the chupacabra den. She was pretty far from okay. Just, um, stay there, Marlin yelled. I'll go get some more rope. His head disappeared. No, she screamed. Don't leave me. Marlin reappeared. Okay, I'll stay, but I'm not sure how to get you out of there. I might need to come down too. How are you doing? She didn't know how to respond to that question, so she didn't. I think that picnic table broke your fall, he said. Can you move your toes? Her brain sent the message down to her feet. She felt her toes wiggle in her boots. Thank God. I can move them. That's good, Marlin said. What about your neck? She turned her head to the side. She wished she hadn't. There were hundreds of chupacabras squealing and shrieking and scuttling across one another like giant newborn hamsters fighting for milk. Panic rose inside her like a seismic sea wave. She had to get out of here. She tried to shift up onto her knees, but her left arm stopped her. She looked down at her glove. Her wrist was at an angle she'd never seen before, and it didn't look like an upgrade. The pain raced through her arm. I think my wrist is broken she said. Okay, we can deal with that. What about the rest of you? Are you able to move? She managed to prop herself up on her good elbow. She looked down at her body and saw a wave of chupacabras approaching, sniffing at her toes. About ten feet away, she could see the shape of Olivia's corpse. She looked up at Marlin. I can move, he called down to her. Listen, I need you to try and get yourself onto higher ground. Can you get up onto a table? It'll be easier to kick at them. Are you up for it? I think so. Good. Do that. Try and walk from table to table. If you keep moving, they won't cluster around. Oh, fuck. He disappeared again. What is it? She yelled. Marlin hissed down at her. Stay right where you are. What? Why? Someone's coming. 
Marlin army crawled to the highest point of the roof and peeked out into the night. A large white jeep snaked down the road above them, pulling into a parking space outside the cafeteria. Marlin quickly ran through the camp geography in his head. His brat was parked on the southern side of the building, tucked behind a thicket of cypress trees. It was probably safe for now. The jeep came from the north, deeper inside the camp. The road it followed led to a plantation house that had served as the camp director's quarters. Marlin watched as the driver killed the engine. He couldn't make out a face. He tucked himself back against the roof, afraid he'd be spotted. He heard the car door open and close, followed by light footsteps on gravel as the interloper approached the front entrance. Shit, shit, shit. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Carrie lay flat on her back, terrified. She heard the unshackling of the combination lock. She kept her eyes on the entrance. Her view was obscured by the shattered frame of the table that had broken her fall. She should have moved, but now it felt safer to stay where she was. One of the double doors creaked open. A shadowy figure entered, silhouetted in the moonlight. It looked like a woman, slight frame with long hair draped in shadow. Carrie couldn't make out her face, but she could see that the woman's legs were bare. The woman crossed into the room, leaving the door open behind her. So far, she seemed oblivious to the damage to the ceiling and the two bodies lying on the floor. Carrie was too scared to move. She tried to control her breathing. The last thing she needed was to have a panic attack. She could feel chupacabra claws poking through the chainmail shark suit as they scampered across her body. Through the fine mesh of the fencing mask, she watched as one of the beasts shoved past the squirming multitudes and sniffed its way toward her. Carrie closed her eyes and held her breath. She felt the weight of something crawling under her chest. The stench of the unwashed, underfed beast was unlike anything she had ever smelled. She opened her eyes to find herself face to face with the monster. This chupacabra was huge, almost double the size of the others. It had a thick, shiny coat of white fur. Nothing she'd seen on TV or in books had prepared her for this. They were never supposed to grow more than a foot tall. It nudged at her head with its massive snout. It curled back its lips, revealing row after row of teeth. Carrie couldn't scream. The sucker began to gnaw at the reinforced fabric of the mask, right where it met her neck. She shivered as cold, wet slobber dripped through the chainmail and down onto her skin. The chupacabra had found a failure point in her armor. She felt the teeth on her neck when a high-pitched whistle cut through the air. The chupacabra spun its head. Come to me, buttercups, cooed a soft sing-song voice. The giant chupacabra leapt off her chest. A few other large ones scurried past her eyeline. Carrie gingerly shifted back under her elbow to get a better look. A tiny Asian woman stood about five feet tall. She was wearing a tank top and running shorts. Long black hair fell down to her waist. Turning her back to Carrie, the woman stretched out her arms like a bird in flight. Three giant chupacabras raced up to her as she knelt on the floor. One climbed right up her legs and lay itself across her shoulders. The other two sat at attention in front of her. Carrie squinted in the darkness. It looked like the sucker was licking the woman's cheek. 
the woman let out a high-pitched giggle, then walked across the cafeteria. A few more chupacabras followed. She approached a large steel door. Carrie could hear the beeps as the woman entered digits into an automated keypad. It was far more up-to-date than anything else in this building. The door swung open, bathing the cafeteria in an eerie green light. The woman entered the room and the metal door slammed shut behind her. What the hell? Carrie rolled over onto her side. She slowly pulled herself up to her knees. Psst. She looked over at the entrance. Marlon poked his head inside the cafeteria doors. Carrie motioned for him to come help with Olivia's body. Carrie sat on the bow of Sparky's fishing boat as it sped far out into the Atlantic Ocean. The saltwater spray felt good against her face. Her wrist was definitely broken. Marlon had a splint in his truck and had done his best to stabilize it once they'd escaped the camp. They'd been bouncing around out here for what felt like hours. She had no clue how much time had actually passed. It might have only been 20 minutes. Marlon assured her that they'd take the body out plenty far. She looked back and watched Marlon's wild gesticulations as he reenacted the night's events for Sparky. She couldn't hear a word over the growl of the Mercury 4 stroke. Luckily, the mysterious woman had stayed behind the steel door at the camp's cafeteria long enough for them to make an escape with Olivia's corpse. Marlon had carried most of the weight on his shoulders, while Carrie did her best to wrangle the legs with her one good arm. When they finally got back on the road, Marlon filled their drive with nervous rambling. He hadn't gotten much of a look at the woman's face either. He spent a few minutes trying to remember who the character was who'd let the rats out of that German town. He knew it had peas. He kept saying Peter Piper. But that was a guy with the pickled peppers, right? Pied Piper. You're thinking of the fucking Pied Piper. She finally snapped. Yeah, that's it. This woman was the Pied Piper of Chupacabras. Carrie tuned him out for the rest of the ride. He seemed surprised that she hadn't put up a fight when he suggested dumping the body off Sparky's boat, but it was the only good idea she'd heard all night. That should have been their original plan. She didn't love bringing Sparky into the fold, but Marlin repeatedly told her how good Sparky was at keeping secrets. The guy seemed pretty damn chatty when she met him at the Chicky Hut, but she was out of fucks to give at this point. Sparky cut the engine. Carrie leaned her head back against a white boat fender and looked up at the stars. Sparky and Marlin bickered about how many bricks they needed to weigh down the sail bag and about what sort of knots were the strongest and who was a better Boy Scout. Streaks of azure blue lightened the night sky. Dawn was near. Sparky made his way up the bow to ask if she wanted to watch them give Olivia the old heave-ho. No, thank you, she responded. It was quiet for a minute. Waves slapped against the boat's hull. Finally, she heard a loud splash. They drifted in the sea lane until the sun began to rise in the east. As Sparky piloted the boat back to shore, Carrie wondered what new nightmares a day would bring. You're listening to Low Life, narrated by Nick Sullivan and Eleanor Cottle. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Realm, listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. 
Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Low Life is written by Steve Marcarelli and Billy Laylor, produced by Marco Palmieri, and executive produced by Molly Barton. Audio produced by Amanda Rose Smith. Sound design and editing by Kaylin West. And theme music by Amanda Rose Smith.